Hello and welcome to the Zaria podcast. I'm Imogen Lillywhite and today I'm talking to Faisal Durrani, head, head of Middle East Research for Knight Frank. Welcome to the podcast, Faisal. Thanks, Imogen. Great to be here. There's a huge demand for the office space at the moment. You and I were discussing this a few weeks ago. Rent's going up in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, but what is the kind of demand that you are seeing How long and how long do you think it's going to last? Um, really good question. So I think that the source of the demand stems from the fact that we've got pretty strong economic growth in the UAE at the moment. Um, in fact, we class the UAE and Saudi together as Gulf Tiger economies, uh, borrowing that phrase from the Asian Tiger economies of the 90s, uh, simply because economic growth last year in these two countries was amongst the highest in the world. Um, and if we look at the non-oil sector PMI readings for the UAE, uh, we see that businesses have been in expansionary territory now for more than two years, which strongly suggests that they've been recruiting, growing and expanding, their order books are rising, and we're feeling that impact in the commercial office market in the form of rising demand. Now, where that demand is coming from is quite diversified, as it has been the case historically in a market such as Dubai, which is um, broadly connected to the number of blue chip businesses that operate out of Dubai. Um, So what we're seeing is the bulk of that demand coming from the business services sectors, the technology sector, and of course, banking and finance. And these three sectors together account for about 60% of all the office space demand we've seen. We had about a million square feet of new requirements uh, last year. So let's just go down into the specifics a little bit. So this month, since we last spoke about this, we've had the announcement of Abu Dhabi Global Market expanding. Like I was sort of floored by that announcement because it's going to expand tenfold, I think. And Dubai International Financial Centre is growing as well. So we had a report last month saying that 60 hedge funds are looking to establish there. But there's, while this is going on, there's been persistent talk in there about recession, but we don't seem to have... For some reason, we seem to be immune to that in the UAE. It doesn't seem to have reached us. But do you think this will hit the plans for the UAE's financial centres? Is it a concern, do you think? I think think you're right. Depending on what you read, Mm -hmm. um, we're we're either heading for a recession or a soft landing. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, it hasn't materialised yet. Um, And in the interim, we've got strong domestic demand and growth. And I think that we need to trace back all the way to the start of the pandemic. Um, because the UAE, of course, had an extraordinary response to an unprecedented event in the way in which it contained the spread of the virus. Um, We had a lot of businesses over the last three years that have relocated here or opened branches here from places like Hong Kong, Singapore, even the UK. Um, And these businesses have now moved their staff here. Um, In terms of the expansion that you're talking about, we're actually in a position right now where we've got a shortage of prime grade A offices in most major cities in the Middle East. Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and Riyadh as well. If we look at occupancy levels for grade A offices, they're hovering in the mid 90s percent. And that links back to talent attraction and retention issues. Um, And also the fact that a lot of these multinational companies have global mandates to occupy best in class, grade A, ESG rated buildings, and nothing less. So we are seeing a greater disparity in the performance of grade A and grade B rents. So at the moment, we're in a position where there simply isn't enough prime grade A stock. Um, so the new supply that's coming through will be welcome in the market because we can't house all the demand that we're seeing coming through at the moment. I think any extra capacity that's added to the prime grade A office market is going to be terrific, whether it comes in the form of ADGM or whether we see things like DIFC 2.0 uh, moving forward. 
Um, we ourselves are aware of several hundred thousand square foot requirements in the market that simply cannot be housed at the moment. Um, so new businesses coming to the UAE looking for office space are finding very limited options available. Um, and that is driving rents up um, and also means these businesses are being forced to consider you know, more secondary or, or older office space, which then comes back to issues around being able to attract and retain talent. So another side of this that people perhaps don't think about that much is buying office space as an investment. Does it make sense to do that at the moment, bearing in mind whether we, I mean, it depends whether we have the recession or the soft landing, isn't it? But what do you think about office space as an investment, basically? Um, so yields today for offices range from 6 to 7, 8% plus, um, and inflation at the end of last year, according to the government figures that were actually announced yesterday, uh, was around 5%. So from an investment perspective, investing in real estate, commercial real estate is still a really good hedge against inflation, especially when we look at where inflation is headed. The forecast by the government for the end of this year is 3.2%. Um, so if you're getting a yield of 6 to 7%, that's double the level of inflation. So you are making money. So in terms of office uh, as an asset class for investment, it is a good asset class, but I think we need to be careful to focus on prime grade A space because that is where the demand is rather than older grid B stock. We've touched on this a little bit already, but where is the demand coming from that's coming in for office space, which we know what the government says about it, but what, as Knight Frank, where do you see it coming from? Who's approaching you saying we need these spaces? Which companies? So it's a whole variety of companies. The bulk of it, if I were to break it down, is business services. Um, so these are things like law firms, real estate businesses, media companies, um, this is where the majority of demand is coming from. Um, a lot of it is coming from overseas and continues to do so. The economies um, in the UAE and Saudi are doing really well at the moment and businesses are clamoring to be a part of that. And we're seeing you know, businesses that already exist here also growing their footprints to cater to the growing domestic demand. Um, and the businesses are coming from literally all over the world. So from Asia, places like Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, from the UK, definitely um, as well. And of course, more recently, Eastern Europe too. If we move on, so you were talking a little bit about the UAE and Saudi Arabia already, but what, there's a lot of changes going on in Saudi. Um, the opening, the country's been looking at opening up much more over the past years than we've seen. Then there's also Project RHQ, under which they're aiming to attract companies to establish regional headquarters there. You and I have spoken about this previously and what you've said is really interesting, so I want to ask you again. Um, are the two countries going to compete or are they going to complement each other? What does it mean for our market? We're in the UAE right now, so what does it mean for us? It's probably more of the latter rather than the former, so they are going to complement one another rather than compete. Um, I think if we zoom out on the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, we've only got one global hub city at the moment and that is Dubai. Um, the region is large enough to accommodate another global hub, uh, whether that's Riyadh or Jeddah or another location in Saudi, TBC. Um, as it stands, the Saudi government is focusing its efforts on positioning Riyadh as the new commercial nerve center for the kingdom. It's where the bulk of job creation is happening. That's where we see the bulk of office demand coming through. Um, and if we look at um, projects such as King Abdullah Financial District um, in Riyadh, which is about 10 million square feet of office space, it is fully committed there is no space available there. 
Um, and you know, one of the sort of telltale signs of um, regional hub cities complementing one another is when you look at air travel between the two locations. Um, and all we need to do is look at Europe or, or Asia to get to see examples of this that already exist elsewhere in the world. Um, so if we take uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, they're all within an hour's flying time of each other. You've got a similar situation between London and Paris, um, where actually the, the top destinations out of their airports are one another. So the top destination out of Heathrow is Charles de Gaulle and vice versa. And if we look at Dubai and Riyadh today, we already have that in place. Riyadh is the number one destination out of Dubai and vice versa. So the two cities are complementing rather than competing. The other overriding factor to think about is the makeup of the economies and the domestic populations. Um, in the UAE, 10% of the population is uh, indigenous, the rest is expat. And in Saudi, the opposite is true. 90% of the population is indigenous and expats make up 5 or 10% of that total. With Vision 2030, there is a significant amount of economic transformation that is being driven by local demand and local requirements. Um, so that is going to be catered to first before um, sort of progressing on to a more global view. So for the time being, it does appear like they're going to complement one another. And as I say, the region is big enough to accommodate two big cities. That's really interesting about the different populations, because I think people think that we're one and the same, that we're very similar economies, but actually couldn't be more different in some respects. In others, we're quite similar, but that's the difference I think that people don't realise is the difference between expat and local populations, definitely. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, if you look at where the uh, where the investment's coming when we talk about things like the, um, the Giga projects and the core pillars of Vision 2030, uh, one of them is to provide world-class housing to Saudi citizens. And we're currently tracking about 550,000 homes that are due to be delivered by the end of the decade. So in the first instance, the idea is to make sure Saudi nationals themselves have access to world-class housing before uh, we start thinking about uh, foreign ownership. Um, and similarly, if you talk about the hospitality sector in Saudi, we've got more than 300,000 hotel rooms that are planned to be delivered by 2030. For context, the UAE today has 200,000 hotel rooms. Okay. So we're talking about building more rooms in, in Saudi in the next seven years than the UAE has in total today. Um, and a lot of that is being driven by the plan to have 100 million visitors come to the kingdom by the end of the decade. Domestic tourism is going to have to play a really big part in that because we know from our own data that about 40% of, of Saudis actually choose to not stay in a hotel when they travel domestically. Um, and you know all the transformation that's taking place is going to try and address that. Why do Saudis choose not to stay in hotels when they travel within the kingdom itself? Um, so the, the, the dynamics, the drivers of the economy uh, are totally different. So when they don't stay in hotels, where are they staying? Relatives? Or? They stay with friends and family um, or they stay in service departments. Okay. Um, and when they choose not to stay in hotels, the reasons are fascinating. It's usually to do with quality. Um, restrictions in terms of not being able to have extended family in the same room, uh, restrictions around not being able to cook their own meals in their hotel rooms, um, and cost is obviously another consideration. But what we found is that amongst um, uh, millennials in particular, cost really isn't a factor um, in Saudi, um, which is quite ironic given that it is that age group that's actually struggling to save a deposit to buy a home. Um, so what we're finding is millennials are actually positioning the experience through travel above property ownership.
It sounds like there's a whole other podcast possibly on Saudi hospitality. That's really interesting. So, I mean, we all know that we all know people who are coming to the Gulf at the moment who've never considered coming here before because of the economic success and so on. But what's actually happening inside is so fascinating that not many people get to hear about it. So it's really interesting. So I can't have a real estate expert here without talking about UAE residential prices. So I'm writing pretty much every week, new residential property prices broken in Dubai, new records set for this transaction, that transaction. A few of them come from Knight Frank, obviously, but how long could it last? Look, every cycle is different um, in one way or another. The drivers are always different. And um, uh, the, the freehold residential market in Dubai is only 23 years old. And over that time, we've had two and a half cycles. We're currently in our third. Um, so all we can do is one, take a look in the rearview mirror to see what happened in the past. Um, so our first property cycle had six years of price growth. Our second property cycle had four years of price growth. In this third cycle, we're three and a half years in, we've got three and a half years of growth. There is nothing at the moment when looking at the fundamentals of the market to suggest that there is an imminent slowdown or cliff edge moment on the horizon. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, we've got the unrelenting demand from overseas based international ultra high net worth individuals who are buying Dubai's most luxurious properties as they're chasing after the sun, sand, sea lifestyle, which typically comes in the form of a villa, which is then removing stock from the market. And if we look at the total supply we've got planned in Dubai, we're currently tracking 94,000 units due to be delivered by the end of 2026. Really big number. Uh, but if we average it out over the next four years, it works out to about 24,000 homes per year. Um, and the long-term average for home deliveries in Dubai is about 35,000. And I haven't even talked about the fact that 30 to 40% of these are historically delayed for one reason or another. So supply is failing to keep up with demand. Villas only make up 30% of that stock. On the domestic front, domestic buyers are also chasing villas because we're all um, now working uh, remotely. We've got agile working options. People want space for a home office, a home gym, gardens for their kids. Um, and so we've seen the villa market you know, truly outperform. Uh, villa prices over the uh, entire city and are back to 2014 levels, whereas apartments are still trailing by 18%. Um, and the market as a whole, despite all the record growth we've seen, is still 15% cheaper today than it was nine years ago. Um, so it's difficult to say whether we've got you know, another 15% of growth to come. But just looking at the basic fundamentals right now suggests that we're not done yet. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing I write. We're still not at the peak yet where we were before. No, so. we're not. In general, we're not. But there are certain locations where we have exceeded the previous peak, mm -hmm. uh, particularly the top of the market. So places mm -hmm. like Palm Jumeirah, da uh, downtown, uh, even Business Bay. Um, has has exceeded its previous peak, but somewhere like Dubai Marina still still lagging on its mm. previous market peak. So it's interesting, isn't it? Different areas. Like I came here in two thousand and eleven, but I think the first peak before that, it was all about Dubai Marina, wasn't it? Like that was the cool place to go, Dubai Marina, JBR. But that's shifted completely, has said since then. Things there's so many more areas have opened up. Palm Jumeirah is much more finished since then. It, it's changed completely because of the enormous growth that we're experiencing in terms of stuff being built. But yes and no. I mean, somewhere like Dubai Marina, as you say, has mm -hmm. you know long been the poster child for residential property and investment in Dubai. Um, but the stock there is aging. Uh, there's increased congestion. 
uh, there's new towers being added um, and you know if, if we look at Dubai Marina prices I think in the last uh, three and a half years since the pandemic started have risen by about 19 percent uh, if we compare to business B that's grown by about 33 percent and actually average per square foot prices in business B today stand at about 16 1700 dirhams a square foot whereas the marina is about 1500 dirhams a square foot so it's a touch higher and business B is itself 30 to 40 percent cheaper than downtown um, mm. and it is benefiting from being in the shadow of downtown or in the aura of downtown you know it's a vibrant thriving community um, it's got excellent road infrastructure with the parallel roads done the underpass leading to the DIFC is, is completed and all you need to do is look at the volume of commuters traveling to and from the, the metro station in the mornings and in the evenings mm. to give you a sense of what sort of community has emerged there mm. and you know on top of all of that um, the lack of development sites in the marina also means that the business bay Canal uh, has emerged as a hotspot for branded residences. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got super high-end branded residential developers and operators that have entered that market. Mm -hmm. um, the Ritz-Carlton, uh, Mama Shelter, Mr. C, further up the canal. Um, and these properties are selling for starting ticket prices of 10, 20 million dollars. Um, and it is definitely emerging as, as a rival to downtown, as the center of the city sort of gravitates back towards the north to the DIFC downtown business bay agglomeration. You've been here long enough to yeah. know that um, Dubai's explosive growth means we have multiple uh, city centers, if you want to use that term. We, we, we know of five, uh, which also means when we're trying to define a prime residential neighborhood, it isn't like any other city in the world where it's uh, wrapped around the center of, of the city. Because we've got so many central business districts, um, for us to define prime, we actually analyzed over 600,000 residential transactions over the last 23 years. Um, and the qualifying criteria was that a minimum of 10% of deals had to take place at over 10 million dirhams for three consecutive years. And when we analyzed the market that way, we found the Palm Jumeirah, Jumeirah Bay Island and Emirates Hills were the only areas that qualified. And it's not a contiguous geography. But that is what we class as prime. So that reflects your point about there being multiple sort of city centres. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your insights, Faisal, and thank you for joining me. You've been listening to the Zaria podcast. Mm -hmm.